we are continuing a message series that we began last week entitled Life on Mission, where we are looking at the Great Commission, the final words of Jesus before he ascended to heaven to each and every one of his followers. Found in the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at this last week, Matthew 28, Jesus said, go and make Go and make followers of all people. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I've taught you. If you were with us last week, you know Pastor Justin kicked this series off talking about how there's no greater time than now. There's no greater moment than today to walk out the Great Commission. I want to spend our time this morning talking about what that looks like. What needs to be operating in us and through us if we are to walk out the Great Commission well. You know, there's an old sales and marketing saying, a tried and true adage that has stood the test of time, and that saying is this, communication 101 is to know your audience, to know your audience. You can have a great message, but if you miss opportunities to get to know your audience, then you're going to miss opportunities to connect. And I think on top of that, too often, too many of us, tend to communicate not with the needs of others first and foremost. We tend to communicate with our own needs first and foremost, and that leads to ineffective communication. And that has implications beyond sales and marketing. That impacts our marriages and our parenting and our friendships, but we'll keep all of those for another day. Um, In a couple of months, I'm going to celebrate 10 years of being a pastor. And and before the... I thank you. (laughs) Before that, however, I had almost a 20-year career in publishing. You put those two things together, it makes me old. But but it also allowed me to learn a couple of things, and so one of which I want to share with you. I mentioned our industry was publishing, and our audience was the construction industry. And during that time, we were like every other company in the on the planet, looking to take traditional business and move it to the online arena. We were building awesome tools and applications to help move this bidding process, how contractors bid on projects, secure jobs, grow their business, moving it to the online arena. One of the responsibilities of one of my teams was to call on architects, architects that were putting together blueprints, plans, and specs for governmental projects of all different sizes, local government, state government, national government, to try to get our hands on these blueprints, to digitize them, upload them, and again, move the bidding process online. I realized early on there were a few members of my architect team that were really good at getting their hands on these blueprints. And so I sat with them, uh, you know, learned a little bit about how they do it, quality controlled their efforts, and I found out they were just naturals at developing rapport over the phone, relationship over the phone, which is not the easiest thing to do. And so one day I had an idea. I like to say, I worked for 20 years, I had one idea, you know. <laughs> I actually had a lot of them, but many of them were lousy, didn't go very far. But this one was a good one, actually was a game changer for my career and for our company. Put together a proposal to upper management, submitted a budget to create an inside sales division. I wanted to take this skill set that I was seeing on the architect side, government projects, by law, municipal, public, had to be open, promoted, out for bid. I wanted to apply that on the private side. I wanted to start a sales team where we would call hotels and motels and and restaurants and retail establishments, private colleges and universities to develop a relationship on the owner level in those areas. We'd find out about their project needs. If they needed roof repairs or they needed window replacement or whatever the needs were, we could find out about it, hot off the press, 
under the radar from all our competition, get those project opportunities in front of the eyeballs of our customers and help them grow their business. Well, upper management loved the idea. Our 250 traditional sales reps around the country loved the idea because then they could go into a prospect's office and not just say, hey, we're looking to promote you, but instead we're looking to partner with you as well to grow your business and give you opportunities to bid on projects you're not going to find out about anywhere else. So put the team together, took my best architect employees, started the team, and in short measure, it grew. It doubled, then doubled again, then doubled again. In a couple of years, we had 20 inside sales reps, and I was doing a ton of interviewing um, for these positions because they were sought after. And again, this, is, this might seem cliche-ish, but again, it was 20 years ago, and just like this saying, it's tried and true. It, it stands the test of time. In the interview, whether the interview was going well or not going well, I ended it the same way. I said, all right, it's showtime. You've talked to me this whole interview about how great of a salesperson you are. Now it's showtime. Here's a pen. Sell me this pen. And so I said it was showtime, but what I was really looking for was whether it was go and no time. I wanted to see how they approached this fork in the road moment. Some of them took the pen from my hand and they just pinned their ears back and they just started selling me. They just go, right? They say, you know, real or imagined sales advantages that they could think of. They'd say like, oh, you picked the Rolls-Royce of pens. This green and black and white color combination scores the highest on all of our surveys. And of course, it says Hickory Ridge Church, so we know that's the best church. That's not imagined. That's real. <laughs> um, but, you know, our, our patented uh, technology, ergonomic technology, means that this pen is the most comfort in your hand. And of course, our, our proprietary Ink technology makes this pen, you know, write hours longer than all of our competition. And they'd hit me with one sales advantage over the other and then look at me and go, so how many can I put you down for? And I'd say, thank them for their time and let them know we'd be in touch. It was generally the end of the, 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 the process for them. Some of them would take the pen and they'd look at it because you do need to know your product. And then they'd put the pen down. And then they'd talk to me. They'd say, Mr. Salino, how, how long have you been in the market for a pen? I'm like, oh, okay, I like this, you know. What kind of pens have you purchased in the past, you know? How much have you typically spent on pens? I'm like, all right, we got to play it. This is good. I like that. Because the goal is not just regurgitating all the sales advantages of the pen. It's to get to know your audience. Communication 101 is to know your audience so you can discover what you don't know. You can discover what the needs are of your audience and best match their needs to your solution. This is not a word we typically think of when we think of salespeople, right? Um, you know, I didn't realize when I put this idea to upper management that I'd become a salesperson, but we went through extensive sales training, all of us. And, you know, what I found, typically, stereotypically, we think of salespeople, we think of slick and crafty, right? What I found is that the most successful salespeople, certainly on my team, were the ones that approached that prospect of selling with that level of humility. They, were, they knew they didn't know everything. And they were desirous, curious, to discover what it is that they didn't know so that they could best answer someone's question, provide a solution for someone's need. What is the connection to the Great Commission? Well, I think much like those successful salespeople, we too need to be willing to learn what it is that we don't know about others and if we are to walk out the Great Commission well. So I want to spend our time identifying three keys that need to be operating in us and through us when we approach someone in a witnessing Great Commission kind of perspective. The first one is this. We need to pursue humility. We need to pursue 
humility. We live in a world that encourages pride at almost every turn. And if we're not careful, everything we experience can run through that pride filter. What do I think about this? What are, what's my opinion? Who needs to hear how I feel about this? Pride is so easy to fall into. Humility stays only if you invite it. Humility stays if you invest in it. Humility stays if you pursue it. Listen, don't mishear me. God is God, and the truth is the truth, whether we consider him, acknowledge him, call out to him or not. But with regards to the Great Commission, what I want to encourage everyone, because I see far too much of this in, uh, on YouTube and in content on the best way to witness to somebody, I, it's, it's sad to me. And it can be distilled down to this idea of this uber search for being right, uber desire to be seen as right. I'm right, and you're wrong. And I'd love a few minutes of your time to tell you all about it. You know, generally doesn't work uh, very well. That, not too receptive. God's not calling us to put a bullseye on someone's chest. He's not calling us to finger wag and worry about us being right. He wants us to be light in a dark world. He wants us to approach somebody humbly, pursuing humility. I think a Great Commission perspective that pursues humility is what I like to call, tell me. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your experiences. Tell me about the examples that you followed growing up. Tell me about the highs and lows in your life that can start if I'm pursuing humility, if I'm cognizant of the fact that I don't know everything. And just like those salespeople, interested in finding out what I don't know so that I can best meet you where you're at. Tell me starts to emerge a portrait of who God is to them. And as that portrait gets emerged, if we're not so focused on just being right, but we will pursue humility, we start to see that portrait of this God they don't believe in and this God that they don't follow we're probably going to come to the same conclusion. I wouldn't follow that God either. It gives you an opportunity to bring clarity, an opportunity to share your experiences and who God is to you. Tell me is inconvenient. Tell me takes time. Tell me denotes a process. Tell me sometimes is the result of an invitation. Tell me is absolutely the result of a prioritization. Tell me can oftentimes lead to a relationship. You know, the same model that, that Jesus followed. He entered into the world and entered into our lives. That's why Jesus says, go and make followers. Making anything denotes a process. Making anything denotes time and a, 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 a sequence. In fact, an understanding that we don't know everything and a desire to find out what it is that we need to know, I think needs to be present if we are to walk out the Great Commission effectively. Where in the world would you get an idea like that? Well, from God. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says this, do nothing, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. I think for many Christians, pursuing humility is a challenge. Because like I said, we can fall into that pride 
game almost at every turn, but somewhere in our minds, particularly Americans, we're encouraged to have pride in everything, pride in ourselves, pride in our families, zip codes, pride in our sports teams, pride in our accomplishments, our resume, our bank account. Social media, I think, is an exasperator to that, an accelerant, where we get online and we are so encouraged to create our own identities and to promote our own identities and to manage our own identities, and that could be so heavy to carry as opposed to what God says, not to create yourself and promote yourself, but to deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow after him. Pastor Tim Keller puts it like this. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of yourself or thinking less of yourself. It's simply thinking of yourself less. Humility celebrates the value of everyone. Humility celebrates the, the heart of everyone, the giftings that God's given to everyone, the accomplishments of everyone. Pride tends to covet all those things. We see someone valued. We see some gifting being walked out. We see some accomplishment being celebrated, and we feel bad if we're, if we're full of pride. We get jealous, envious. It stokes the flames of insecurity in us. Humility stays if we pursue it. And humility, if you're questioning whether you're operating in humility, Think about that definition. Humility celebrates the value of others. I would add to that, particularly those that the world says are not very valuable. Truth about the matter is this. Pursuing humility demonstrates the power of God. There is power in humility. There is a power born out of a deep conviction and trust in God because we are admitting that we cannot save ourselves by ourselves. That the only way that you and I are worthy of salvation is to admit the fact that we are completely unworthy of it. That by God's power exists in that truth. And that truth, simply put, is it's not all about us. The world says it's all about you. Promote you, create you, manage you, click on me, listen to me, trend me. In the currency of God, we recognize it's not all about us. The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. There's power in that truth that it's not all about us. And just like we sang this morning, that we can get busy about God's plan. That we become more concerned with honoring God than we are in honoring self. And that we stand firm in that truth that what God did to us and for us and in us, he desires to do through us in the lives of others. So we need to pursue humility. The second is just as important. We need to see redemptively. We need to see redemptively. While we are often are tempted to give in to the temptation to just fill in our blanks, write our own scripts about somebody based upon a few thin externals, what he said, what she posted, how they dressed, how he voted, right? God sees the heart beneath it all. And to the best of our ability, as followers of Jesus Christ, we too need to see the heart beneath it all. To truly hear and see and meet somebody where they are at, tell me. That enables us to best walk out what it says in 1 Thessalonians, that God's will is that you and I be sanctified. Sanctification is a theological term, basically means the process of becoming more like Christ. His thoughts, his actions, 
his attitudes, his perspectives. Jesus is the standard. As followers of Jesus Christ, Jesus is the standard. We don't let ourselves off the hook. We don't say, well, I'm not perfect, but at least I'm better than this guy at that, you know. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the standard. And the goal for all of us as followers, to the best of our ability, more and more and more each and every day, is to see what's happening around us more with his eyes, to see redemptively. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, birthed a lot of churches, discipled a lot of people, was on one of his missionary journeys in the book of Acts, and I want to pick it up in chapter 17, where it says, while Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Everywhere Paul looked, there was a different statue to a different God, and he was greatly distressed. Fork in the road moment, right? And he could have said, filled in the blanks, wrote the, wrote the script, said, eh, nobody here is going to listen to me. Nobody here is going to hear what I got to say. If they do hear me, they're just going to build another statue. Paul's God, right? Write the script, fill in the blanks, wash his hands of the whole thing, leave tread marks, and leave. Instead, Paul starts the process of seeing redemptively. You know what he does? He starts the process of seeing redemptively. He starts going and knowing. And he did it the, the way Paul does it. He started by going to the temple, right? Because Paul was Saul, right? The Pharisee of the Pharisee, right? He starts by going to the temple, talking to the Jews in Athens, hearing them, listening to them, meeting them where they're at. But he doesn't stop there. He goes into the marketplace. He starts talking to the people in the city of Athens, listening to them, speaking with them. He even goes to the Areopagus, the cultural ruling council, speaks and hears them. He surveys the spiritual landscape of Athens. He compliments their religiosity. He, he acknowledges and quotes their poets. He spends time in Athens going but desiring to know who they were. Who, how does God see them? Not filling in his own blanks, but instead having compassion upon the people. Remember, it says greatly distressed, not following his feelings. There, there's, there's something to learn in our 21st century existence. Not writing the scripts, not leaving treadmarks, but having compassion. Seeing the people of Athens a little bit more the way God sees them. And he says to them, he points out an idol inscribed to the, quote, unknown God. And he says this later in chapter 17. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. In my early 20s, I had no idea God had becoming a pastor for me in my cards. But I think, looking back, here was an opportunity that he wanted me to start seeing redemptively. During that season of my life, for some foolish reason, I wanted to be a college professor. I thought a life in academia was the path for me. I love teaching, and some reason I thought that was what I wanted to do. So at, during that time, I started to grab every opportunity I could to teach on a college level. I taught in colleges, universities, community colleges. And one university I was teaching at came to me and said, we have an additional opportunity for you to teach that we'd love for you to consider. And I said, sure, I'm all ears. Where is it? They said, it's in our prison program. <laughs> 
And, and like Paul, I was greatly distressed. The idea of going into a medium security prison for eight weeks teaching 25 prisoners who were enrolled in, a, in an associate's program um, didn't give me those warm fuzzies. But again, just being honest, I accepted that opportunity, thinking to myself, it's going to be a good experience. I'll be able to put it on my resume. I'll pad my resume. You know, I'll do it, right? But I was anxious. I was distressed. And then anxiety didn't really subside when I went to the prison for orientation. The corrections officers, they were just doing their job, but boy, they're filling my head with every what-if scenario you could think of. I had all the course curriculum in my head. Now I had all these do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that. You know, my anxiety was high when I came in for my first day of class. And for security purposes, 25 prisoners, they had to have them in the class uh, ahead of me. So I came in, and they had told me in orientation that it was going to be a mix of younger prisoners uh, and some older, a handful of older prisoners. And they said to me, don't worry. The older prisoners will keep the younger prisoners in line. And I'm like, uh, in line? What do you mean by that? And they're like, well, you know, make no mistake. You're getting the cream of the crop here, but it's the cream of a bad crop, right? So I said, Okay. So distressed as I was, I came in for my first day, and I put my bag on the table, introduced myself, and started giving an overview of what this course for the next eight weeks was going to look like. And I didn't get, I don't know, 30, 60 seconds into that when a younger prisoner, we had our traditional classroom rose, and he was all the way in the back. He slams his fist on the desk, uh, so much so that it certainly got my attention, and I stopped talking. And he just looked, he had his angry, frustrated expression on his face. He just pointed his finger at me and he said, ain't nothing going to happen in this room till you go and shut that door. And I said, I didn't even, like, just processing that, didn't even have an opportunity to respond. Didn't even have an opportunity to think about whether I was going to go shut the door. When one of the older prisoners in the front row and I had noticed that when the younger prisoner slammed his fist and everybody stopped talking, you could hear a pin drop. The older prisoner, everybody affectionately called him Pops. He didn't move. He didn't turn around. He didn't move. And when I'm staring at the younger prisoner, all of a sudden, he just slowly turns his seat around. And he stares at that younger prisoner. And he addresses him. And what he said I cannot repeat in church. <laughs> it was colorful. And, um, but I'm going to distill it down for you as best I can. What he said to that guy was, what is the matter with you? He's here to help you. Let him help you. And again, it was longer and it was louder and it was much more colorful than all that. And while he was laying the wood on this younger prisoner, I thought to myself, man, I'm going to have to get a corrections officer in here. This thing is likely to get out of control quickly. But what I saw in the expression of that younger prisoner changed everything and started me on the process of seeing this group of people at this time in my life redemptively. His entire expression changed. His facial expression softened. And after a moment of two of hard swallowing, he shook his head up and down. And I realized right then 
that my anxiety for me turned into compassion for them. What I saw in that change of expression was him redemptively. Instead of just filling the script, instead of just buying the stereotype that all prisoners are looking to get away with something, they're just connivers. If you give them an inch, they'll give you take a yard kind of thing. I saw in that change of expression what this younger prisoner needed, what in fact he craved, what most likely he didn't get a lick of growing up. And so right then and there, I changed everything. We got out of the rows and got into a circle. We started the process of getting to know each other, just like Paul and those people in the city of Athens. I wanted to meet them where they were at. I wanted to learn about who they were, their dreams, their hopes, their skills, their families, what they desired when they get out. I took all the neutral third-party examples that I had prepared in my curriculum to illustrate the lessons that I wanted to teach. I threw them all out the window, and it all became who these people were. I used them as examples, real-life examples, not just worrying about padding my own resume anymore, not even just looking to help them navigate the group's that were part of their reality in prison, but actually to help them in life, to explore this dynamic of the older and younger prisoner. And don't get me wrong, protection was a big part of that because that's just a reality in prison, but it was also things like encouragement. It was also things like we saw 30, 60 seconds in, like accountability, pulling people up short. They needed this. They craved it. And so meeting them where they were at Help me to see it's not about me, not about my resume, not about my stress level. It's about them, about honoring God. Fact about the matter, seeing redemptively demonstrates the perspective of God. Seeing redemptively demonstrates the perspective of God. God sees the trauma behind the pain. God sees the hurt behind the words. God sees the sin beneath the sin. And to the best of our ability, again, in our fallible, limited humanness, that's our goal, to see what's happening around us a little bit more with God's eyes. So we need to pursue humility. We need to see redemptively. And the final thing, nothing revelation about this, we just need to show love. We need to show love, not just talk about love. We need to actually show love. I think this is why so many Christians tend to be apprehensive about the Great Commission, and I think it's why I'm so glad that we're spending a few weeks carving out some elbow room talking about these final important words of Jesus to his followers. I think because many of us, whether we avoid the Great Commission saying, hey, we're, I'm an introvert, I'll let the extroverts do it, or we reduce the Great Commission to say, uh, my church has some invite cards, so I'm going to grab a few stacks and put them in some mailboxes and some windshields and think I fulfilled the Great Commission. I think this is why we're apprehensive about this topic, is this area right here, showing love. Because I, th I think we know God loves us. I think we know God is love. I think we know we're supposed to love people. I think this is also true. I want to love people I don't really know how. I don't really know how. I know some people that can work a room. I know some people that can preach a message. 
But we all struggle with this. We all struggle with this, particularly when there's so many needs, so many expectations, so many people in your life. How do I love people? Well, there's lessons really all throughout the Gospels. In the life and example of Jesus Christ, I want to highlight an experience. I want to encourage you to read the Gospels anew, get undone by them anew if you've read them your whole life. But I want to point our attention to a little vignette, a little sequence that happens in the Gospel of Luke. All throughout Luke, really, but in Luke, um, in the beginning of chapter 8, there's references to crowds, right? There's crowds that are all surrounding Jesus as he teaches a parable. In the middle of this chapter, it says that Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, want to get to him, and they can't. They're unable to because of the large crowds. I mean, just paint that picture for you, particularly if you're somebody who's you know, avoids crowds, right? That's what Jesus walked in. I mean, it was shoulder to shoulder. It was a sea of humanity. Um, and they were following after him. And as time went on, they were chasing him with their needs more and more and more. And this particular chapter of Luke, um, it says later in the chapter, after multiple references to crowds, it says, now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Now the crowds are getting smart, right? They're not just chasing after him. They're not just saying, oh, what, Jesus was here? Let's go. It was, we're going to anticipate him. He's coming in on a boat. He sees just the sea of humanity. He has compassion for the crowd. But make no mistake about it, they're all there. And they all have their needs and their expectations. And they're all awaiting him. And what presumably he's doing as he enters the crowd is to find a place where he can be seen, where he can be heard. And in this chapter, we learn in the next verse that a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet. Now, and in this picture that we're painting of a sea of humanity, somebody falling down is not, you know, crazy, right? Tripping on somebody, it is wall-to-wall people could be easy to ignore, could be easy to avoid, could be easy to have somebody just lend a hand, but, you know, get up, brother. But here's Jairus, who's a synagogue leader. His daughter is dying, 12 years old. And as a synagogue leader, it's a safe assumption to think that Jairus knew some folks and had tried some things unsuccessfully. So now Jairus is desperate, and like any good parent, not willing to give up on his daughter. So in that desperation, he throws himself down at Jesus' feet. And in that sea of humanity, when Jairus does that, Jairus becomes the sole focus of our Savior. Jesus hears him and sees him, agrees to go with him to meet his daughter. Verse 42, just to kind of continue this vignette, and as Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. You just, I can see it in some of your faces, right? The anxiety is kind of building, right? This is wall-to-wall needs, wall-to-wall expectations, wall-to-wall people. And in that setting, in that scene, in that portrait, Jarius becomes the sole focus of Jesus. But as he's walking with Jarius towards his home, a woman who has been dealing with a condition of bleeding for 12 years Fights and claws and stretches and reaches 
for her Savior, not, doesn't, isn't able to touch him, just gets the edge of his cloak. And this moment that happens, her bleeding stops. And the moment that happens, Jesus says, who touched me? Who touched me? Not which group of people touched me, not what general area bumped into me. Who touched me? Jairus was the sole focus of Jesus in that setting. Now, it's that woman. That's the way Jesus loves us. And what jumped off the page for me, even though I've read it again and again and again, is the next verse, a little bit further down. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. Boy, that hit me like a ton of bricks. Seeing that she could not go unnoticed. Who is it? Who is it that must not go unnoticed in your life? Jesus walked the world with that level of awareness, and so should we. In life, who is the one? We talked about that last week. Pastor Justin encouraged us to think about who is the one. I just want to add to that. Who is the one the Holy Spirit is saying, I don't want them to go unseen any longer. And I'm calling on you. I'm calling on you to meet them where they're at. I'm calling on you to pursue them humbly. I'm calling on you to see them redemptively. I'm calling on you to show them love. Jesus loved everyone in the crowd, but the way he did it was with a zoom lens. The way he did it was fully present. The way he did it was one person at a time, not wanting that person to go unnoticed any longer. See, showing love demonstrates the purpose of God. Showing love demonstrates the purpose of God. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we read, God hears the cries of his people. Over 40 times in the Gospels, we read, Jesus saw now, God, God can do anything. Speak through a donkey. He can speak through a burning bush. He can just bellow the answers to his people's cries from the heavens. God's answer to every human problem is a person, chiefly the person of Jesus. But as followers of Jesus Christ, his desire is to work through us. His desire is to call upon us. God sees us and hears us so much more deeply than literally just seeing and literally just hearing. God demonstrates his love. He shows love. And the evidence that he does that is because we kept on sinning, not caring about him, not even some of us considering him. And God loved us anyway, unconditionally, so much so that he would step out of heaven, that he would step into our reality as a babe born of a virgin, that he would live a perfect and sinless life and show us the way, that he would willingly, gladly lay down that life for you, for me. 
not just to pay for our sins, but the Bible says to take the totality of our sins upon himself, to become sin. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, separated from God for the very first time for you. That's how much love he was willing to show because that's how humble he is and that's how desirous he is to see you the way he sees you. God is the only one who can make what is not into what is, and he desires to do it through you. He sent us Jesus, who sees us, who understands us, pursues us, who sacrificed for us, and that's what he's calling us to do. Tell me is inconvenient. Tell me requires a sacrifice of time. Tell me absolutely denotes a prioritization and an importance in what God's doing, in what his plan is, in honoring him over honoring ourselves. By doing so, we love others as he loves us. I'm going to ask if you'd close your eyes for just a moment. And I want you to think, and just like we did last week, Justin encouraged us to think about our one. I want to just build on that ask you to, Holy Spirit, just draw to your mind who's that one in your life that must, must, must not go unnoticed any longer? Who is the one that God desires to enable you to see with spiritual eyes, humbly, redemptively, lovingly? I read a quote one time. It said, to be loved and not known is superficial. We do that with our celebrities and our athletes and our social media trenders. Millions of followers, loved by all. Who knows them? To be loved and not known is superficial. To be known and not loved, well, that's our greatest fear. I think that's why some of us don't open up, don't risk being vulnerable, because we're afraid that if we do that, no one's going to show us love. I got news for you. God's got other plans. And it is good news indeed. To be loved and not known is superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be known and loved, that transforms you. And his name is Jesus. Father God, in Jesus' name, Lord, I thank you so much for the gift of today. I thank you so much for your desire to bring to mind as we seek you with our whole heart, bring to mind through the power of your Holy Spirit that one that you do not wish to go unnoticed any longer. I pray your wisdom upon each person praying that 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 picture, that image, that name would come to mind. And I pray also your strength upon each person praying that they would have the strength to obey you to walk through opportunities that you present, open doors that you make to meet that person where they're at humbly, redemptively, and lovingly so that they would know you. They'd have a life-giving, life-saving knowledge of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you're here today joining us online, And you are the one. You are the one who 
God is calling. God is saying, I don't want you to go unnoticed. I want you to come to me. I want you to know me. I want you to be with me. I want you to put me first in your life. I want to first acknowledge those people in your life who have approached you humbly, who have seen you redemptively, who have shown you love, as we talked about last week with Pastor Justin encouraging us to invest and invite, who have invested in you, who have invited you to such a time as this. It's not by accident. This is the place. This is the time. You are the one that he's crazy for, that he loves unconditionally, that he would send his very best for to lay his life down for you so that you could have new life in him and eternal life forever and ever and ever. Can't promise you an easy life. First-hand knowledge, I can tell you, can't promise you an easy life, but sure as heck, promise you a better life with him. So if that's you, right where you are, right where you are, Bible says you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. We tend to add a lot of things to that. It doesn't matter to me if it's right where you are. It doesn't matter to me if you stand up and shout, raise your hand, confess it loudly, confess it quietly. Just receive what God's done for you. His love, the sacrifice of his son. Invite the power and the counsel and the guide of the Holy Spirit into your life. If you're at the end of yourself, and you say, I've made a mess of this going my own way, I want you to invite the Holy Spirit in to lead you to a better way. Confess and believe. If that's you and you're here today, I want to meet you. If that's you and you're here today, this church wants to celebrate with you. If that's you, we want to walk this life journey out with Jesus with you because his way is better and deeper higher and greater than anything any of us can think of on our own but right now I want to ask if you'd stand together we're going to join our hearts and our spirits and our voices together giving praise glory and honor to the one who is deserving